bespoke radio for the masses. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. If the game is rigged, change the game. Game changer. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. This is Fade to Black with your host, Jimmy Church, on the Game Changer Radio Network and KGRA, the Global Radio Alliance. I need your help to get to the year 1985. Listening to Fade to Black with Jimmy Church on the Game Changer Network. Good evening. Fade to Black. Bespoke Radio for the Masses. How you doing? It's Wednesday, February 19, 2020. Fifty days into the new year, only 316 days left. We're back. We are live from a bunker. Somewhere in the middle of beautiful downtown Burbank, California. And I would like to welcome everybody listening all around the world. All across the United States. Hither and thither, to and fro, back and forth, up and down, east and west, north and south. Far and near. This is Fade to Black for KJCR, the Game Changer Network, and KGRA, the Planets. I'm your Jimmy Church. What's cracking, everybody? How you doing? Good evening. Tonight, man, I'm so happy about this. Tonight, international UFO researcher Steve Mara. That's right, live from the United Kingdom, Manchester. <laughs> Can't believe it, man. Steve Mara is here. Steve Mara, one of the United Kingdom's most respected researchers in the realms of ufology, unexplained, and supernatural, with over 1,000 hours of mainstream alternative TV program interviews such as National Geographic's Paranatural and Wild X-Files. He is the head tutor for the UITC Investigators Training Courses in Ufological Studies and is the CEO of Phenomena Magazine, the world's largest e-zine of its kind. It's distributed, check this, in 12 countries with over 1.8 million subscribers. He's an accomplished author of several books, including A to Z of the Unknown, Strange Happenings, and Paranormal Insight. And he's also the founder of the Scientific Establishment of Parapsychology, established back in 1996, and the chairman of MAPIT, Manchester's Aerial Phenomena Investigation Team, And that was established all the way back in 1974. And you can go to his website. The links are right there at JimmyChurchRadio.com for Zohar Management. I would like to welcome back to Fade to Black, the one and only Steve Mara. Steve, good morning, man. How are you? 
I'm good, Jimmy. Thank you for having me on. Excellent. <laughs> I, I, I like that little chuckle. I, I like that little <laughs> chuckle. I, I do. I appreciate everything that you do, Steve, and um, it, not only your contributions to the community and and your just tireless efforts uh, to push this massive juggernaut forward, but also your personal friend and the relationship that we have uh, with you, myself, Rita, fade to black and uh, everything that is going on over at the UK and you allowing us into that uh, international community is something that uh, is very important to us. So I, I just want to take the time before we uh, continue to thank you for all of that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Jimmy. Yeah. No, thank you. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we, we got to keep the, uh, the flame burning in this subject and, uh, and no better way to do so than networking. And of course, there's many, many people in the UK that uh, are aware that of your show. I do know that many people always asking. And of course, we're bringing you over to the UK this year, so uh, they're in for a real treat. Yeah, and 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 we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I want can, can I say one thing? Mm. Uh, you guys are yeah. so cool. So we sit down. I'm going to do this for the audience. You guys are so cool. <laughs> and I said, "Look, man, I'm coming over." I want I want to walk out on that stage and say hello Manchester, right? And and, and you <laughs> yeah. guys were like absolutely. You spin around and get it into the conference schedule right there. Jimmy hits the stage and says hello Manchester. And I'm like, how cool is that? And I, I I can't wait for that moment. And I hope I don't. Are, I hope I don't flub it. it. They're gonna love it, Jimmy. I hope I don't flub wait it. For real I, treat. I hope <laughs> I don't flub it. Well, um, you know, this is uh, this is where I do want to start. Um, and the UFO, and I want to say this in a gentle way uh, because I, I don't like mm. to offend people. But it's it's really simple. The UFO question is not an American thing. And that is, and, and I know you'll agree, globally, it, it that perception kicks in because of all of the marketing and the books and the researchers and the conferences and, it, and some of the big cases uh, only are big cases because of the way that they're publicized and talked about. But that it it comes from the United States, and it is clearly not that. This is a global effort, isn't it? It absolutely is a global effort. I mean, it surprisingly goes back a lot further than what we initially thought. Um, researchers now are finding a connection to the phenomenon right back to 700 BC. Um, so, th really, we have to consider the fact is how long have we been around to observe the phenomena? recognize for what it is and start doing something about it and that's only really pretty much over maybe the since the 1940s to be honest with you but the subject of the ufos goes back a long long time and is global and still is global it is a global phenomena unfortunately we don't get to hear as much of the information i'd only say we probably hear about five percent of the information that's coming out, I reckon about 95% of the of incidents around the world we don't hear about simply because of uh, divided in you know different countries, language barriers, so on and so forth. Um, but we are starting to get more information, and thank God for the internet. I mean, though that does have a lot of um, disinformation on there, um, there is also um, the option of opening doors and networking with other countries and other researchers and trying to put these pieces of the puzzle together. 
The uh, my complaints, and this is where uh, things are kind of like a paradox. <laughs> Check this mm-hmm. out, Steve. This is <laughs> I used to complain, and I still do, that when it comes to ancient and lost history, the United States is ignored. That we're paying attention to Giza, or we, we're looking at Stonehenge, or you know, we can look at mm-hmm. Bolivia and Peru, and and the, uh, even Greece, right? But all of these ancient sites around the world, nobody talks about the United States. That we are the redheaded stepchild of yeah. of the megalithic community. It's like nobody cares. But there is <laughs> there is a genuine history here that needs to be researched. And on yeah. the same token, I'm complaining that. Too much UFO research is focused on the United States and not around the world. It's weird, isn't it? You can't have it both ways, and the grass is always greener. But I'm well, not I mean, s- we can say the United States is the capital of research in the subject of UFOs. It always has been. Uh, and that's simply because of its massive undertaking from the you know, governmental undertaking of uh, research into the UFO phenomenon. I don't think any other country has done as much research officially um, under government um, projects and programs than any other. Um, and I think because they've done so much, there has been a huge amount of information that's been leaked to the general public over the years, even under the Freedom of Information Act now. And that is what stands out more than any other, because other countries have had research programs, don't get me wrong, but they've been small in comparison to the overwhelming amount of research programs the United States have been involved in, in regarding this subject. So it would seem anybody who's coming into the subject would think straight away, if you want to learn about UFOs, America's the place to go. And yes, I would say it's a great starting place because you've got all this documentation, official documentation, which kind of puts you on the map to say straight away, this is a real phenomena and it's been concerning the United States government for a long time. However, when you start to sort of start nitpicking through other research programs around the world, you'll find that other countries have pretty much done the same thing, but a lot, a lot less. And obviously because that was probably down to they didn't have enough money to afford such heavy research programs uh, and long-standing ones. But uh, I believe that is still continuing in the U.S. I, be, I doubt very much that those things have certainly passed. I think they're probably still continuing today, and we'll probably hear about them in years to come. Now, I, I've never asked you this question. As basic as it is, I've never asked. What got you here? What was what what happened? Did you have a sighting? Was your mom abducted? You know, what 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 got you into the subject so many years ago? Uh, well, that's a, it's a good question, and surprisingly, it doesn't get asked very often. Um, but I would say most researchers in the field have had some type of experience, and that's brought them into the subject, even if they admit it or not. Right. Because it's difficult for researchers, because when we're going out there, when we're talking with people and about their experiences, we've got to be seen not to be biased. You know, I mean, it's not like we're going up there because we're believers. We're actually up there sometimes because we just want to find out what the hell's going on. But most, I would say, have had experiences and um, and have brought them to the table. Others probably haven't. Um, for me, I didn't talk about my personal experiences um, for a good 20, 25 years. 
because I didn't want it to be deemed that I was a believer in the subject. You ah. know, it's, it's not a matter of belief, it's a matter of evidence at the end of the day. Right. But I did have experiences from when I was young, from when I was seven years of age, the ufological type phenomena, and I have continued to do so on a regular basis most of my life. Though that didn't really give me any answers. Seeing these things in the sky and having these strange experiences didn't really provide me any answers, just uh, opened up my door to say, yes, there's certainly a lot more going on in life than what some people experience. Um, and that kind of led me into trying to understand the phenomena. And of course, I was lucky because I had a father that was interested in the subject. And um, and whilst my friends at school were reading kind of comics, I was talking into his Eric Von Daniken books. <laughs> so, uh, right. and I was fascinated with the pictures of Nazca lines and things like that. And, and, and it kind of drew me in. I wanted to know more. Well, and, hold, hold um, on. But I had hold, hold, I did so. Hold, hold on, Steve. Hold on. I'm not going to let you get away that easily. You thought <laughs> that you could just dance past the question. And, and <laughs> I'm going to give you credit for the uh, for the effort. Okay? <laughs> okay. Okay, let's back up. You just <laughs> said seven years old. Yes. Now, I'm, I'm trying to think what year that might have been. I know, Steve. So around 1900? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> At seven years old, you and I are the same age. So seven years old, we're talking somewhere in the mid-60s, right? Mm -hmm. What yes. happened? Um, well, I had no idea about UFOs or strange creatures or anything like that. I mean, you know, I was pretty much a, a normal kid, grew up a single, single um, mom and dad are... Um, only had one child, so I'm, you know, I am, there's only myself and I never used to wake up at night. I was quite a sound sleeper until one particular night I woke up and it was still dark. The orange light from the street light was coming into my room as it normally did lighting up the room, but it was one darkest part of my bedroom and I heard a rustling noise. Now I don't know why I woke up, but I looked into the darkness and out the corner of my bedroom came a small figure. I can only describe it as a small being with large, dark eyes. And he was about my size. I say he as well. I don't, this is what's really unusual. I say he, but I don't know if it was a he. But it came out of the darkness of the corner of my room. Um, I don't know how. And I was absolutely petrified. And um, I had an experience I can only describe as it, this thing took control of me and wanted to examine my emotions and I was given certain emotions and this thing was monitoring how I would react to those emotions and it seemed to last forever but it was probably really only last a few minutes at that um, and I just could not take my stare away from his face could not do it could not move totally under control i found myself going through these different emotions one minute happy jumping up and down the bed laughing the next minute um sobbing uh, with sadness and even pain um this thing grabbed my cheeks it brought his hands up four fingers not five it brought his hands up and squeezed my cheeks very very hard and uh, caused significant pain and upset. 
And this was it. I can only imagine now looking back, it's like a test of emotions. After this, it kind of just faded off into the corner of the darkness of the room again and disappeared. And of course, I kind of came round, freaked out, and ran into my mother and father. Um, but I remember the stress of experiencing this. I had a bed quilt with frilly ends on, and I was pulling away at these frilly ends because out of the frustration of not being able to move, I was under control or something. Mm-hmm. And that kind of led me to believe that I wasn't I wasn't dreaming this. This was a real incident. And since then, growing up, I had multiple different sightings of things. And now I see about probably around about three or four of a month now. Uh every month. Now growing up, basis. what what part of uh Great Britain were you living in? Manchester. Oh, I you was, haven't you? You've been in Manchester your whole life. I see. I didn't know my, that. My whole life. My whole life. I didn't know that. So <laughs> this was it. Now Manchester, um, and I sort of understand uh, uh, the country, but Manchester is a manufacturing industrial city, right? It was. Yeah. I mean, it still is. To it still degree, is. Right. It's, 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 it is. Yeah. And um, everybody kind of kept themselves themselves. There was nobody talking about that type of stuff back in the early 60s and um, not in the not in Manchester. It yeah. Wasn't well, I'm asking I'm, I'm, I'm making that point because this isn't in some rural cottage in the countryside. Right. This is in the city of Manchester. This is, it was a housing estate, in a very tight-knit housing estate right. in uh, in Manchester. Um, literally a stone throw from the school where I went, and friends and family all around. Uh, and this incident just popped into my life for no apparent reason, for no reason. And it never really left since that day. It was, seems to be that doorway has been left open somewhat. And I don't know. I mean, it's, I can't say it's me because people who are with me will experience this phenomena, and and have done, and uh, it continues today. Now, I find it interesting that uh, an experience like this, which is a real contact experience, this is physical, you were touched, that is contact, Um, but you didn't speak about this really for how long, 25 years? 25 years, yeah. I mean, I, I was quietly doing my research. I was interviewing people who claimed to have had those experiences. I found them fascinating. But I didn't want to be painted with this brush to consider that I was a believer because I came into this from a very scientific side, you know, doing uh, parapsychological research as well and, and, and trying to understand, with, after doing behavioral psychology, understand how people and why people might have these experiences i was trying to figure out mostly for myself why would a seven-year-old i wasn't really allowed to watch much television when i was young um my parents were were very active and and i was really didn't really have anything like sci-fi things around um i think i had some toy cars and things like that and that was about it um and this suddenly incident suddenly happens out of the blue and of course um, since then, I wanted answers, and I tried to get them by delving into the subject. And of course, it drew me more and more in. Um, and hearing about other people's experiences, I can relate to them, but I didn't talk about it for a good twenty-five years because there was some concern as to how people might see a researcher. Um, 
if they know that they are an experiencer as well. I wanted to come into it with an open mind, being objective, and at the same time, just taking the information and working out exactly trying to what's, what is actually going on here. Um, of course, those answers have still not been delivered, even though they've spent all this time, 38 years doing this now. Um, I still don't have those answers as to why, why me, why then, um, and what was it all about? I mean, that was the only type of incident I've had like that. Um, it's not one I would want again, I'll be honest with you. Um, but it's it's just profound. I just I do not have the answers. And I might not even ever get those answers. But one thing is it's been a hell of a journey over the last 38 years of, uh, of trying to figure out what it was all about. <laughs> have you found uh, anybody else in Manchester that had the same experience and certainly at around the same time i've talked to a few people that claim that they had uh, childhood experiences around about my age um a lot of people report around about the age of seven years of age right um sometimes bedroom visitations um sometimes you know other other locations and i was also involved in thrown into the field of the paranormal as you're young. My grandmother's house was very much haunted. We, I lived with her for some time, and they had a poltergeist in, um, at the house. And it was pretty normal for me from a seven-year-old about the paranormal because uh, my family didn't, you know, didn't shy away from talking about what was going on at the house. Um, and that went on for a long time until they actually they had to relocate. Manchester Housing relocated them and pulled down those old houses. But... Um, I was, you know, I was no stranger to the paranormal, and um, I'd witnessed a few things, you know, throughout my life, uh, which you could put as paranormal in origin. Now, there is, at the age of seven, you know, and I'm trying to put my head into a seven-year-old's, you know, mind, but at the age of seven, if that would happen to you today, it, it, it would be different. It happened to me older. I was ready to do some Bruce Lee, right? Mm. And and mm. but did that? Were you scared, or were you thinking about? I was about absolutely petrified. Right. I mean, this thing, I had no way of getting past this thing because I would have to get by it to get to the door, and that was the first thing I wanted to do was run. And then, as as if I, I slightly moved to go to do so, and that is when I felt a complete lock. I could not. I couldn't do it. I couldn't move. And in my frustration of being petrified of this thing slowly moving towards me, I'm grabbing down unknowingly at the quilt cover. And in my frustration and fear, I'm pulling it apart. I'm pulling the, the ends off this quilt um, because I'm just so frightened. Um, I had no control. I was completely conscious of my actions, um, that this thing was making me do these things, and I could not do anything but do it. And I did exactly what it wanted me to do. And though that it did talk, it never actually talked. I heard it, um, and it, I, it told me to do certain things. And even though I didn't want to, I found myself doing them. What? Um, well, and it was just totally out of control. For, what, I, would, what, I was absolutely petrified. Uh, Steve, what, what did it uh, – we've got three, four minutes to the break. What did it ask you to do? Well, the first thing was to, you know, the, there was an overwhelming sensation of happiness. And he said, or it said, enjoy yourself. 
And I was jumping up and down on the bed laughing. Now, this is not something I would be doing with this thing in the room. Though I, I couldn't understand why I'm jumping up and down on the bed and laughing, um, finding it fun, because deep inside, I was absolutely terrified. Right. Um, but then, next minute, I'm sat on the end of the bed. It comes very close up to my face. I'm, I cannot pull my eyes away from its eyes. I just no way would it allow me to. And it wanted me to express sadness, and I felt this overwhelming sadness. I can't explain what caused this sadness. It wasn't like I had flashes of images through my head, which was upsetting. I just found myself in floods of tears and sobbing. And at that point, there was hands that came up. I remember these hands coming up and pinching, grabbing the sides of my cheek and pinching them very, very tightly to the point where it was painful and it wouldn't let go and I couldn't stop it from doing this. Um, and after that, it kind of it said, everything is okay, everything will be okay. And then it, it kind of stepped back and I was thinking at this point, I can make me dash for the, for the door, but I was still locked on it. I could see the door, but I was still looking at its face. And it just kind of went back into the darkness, the darkest corner of my room. And, and, and as soon as I was kind of released, I think, it seemed like I was suddenly released. And that was when I bolted. I bolted for it. And then I ended up screaming. Mother and father were up. Lights were on. And I think that happened for the rest of the duration of the night. There was no way I was going back in that, bed, that, that, that bedroom. How, did that, how does that affect somebody? You know, you're seven years old. That's one thing, but this has to leave a mark for the rest of your life. How how do you think it changed you? Well, my mother and father convinced me as young that was a dream. You've had a bad dream. You've had a bad dream, and I, and I tried desperately to convince myself that was the case because it was easier right. as a child. Because you know, after that, I had to leave the light on. I was scarred. I never had to leave the light on. The light was simply the street lights outside to come through um, open curtains, you know, and, and I was always happy with that. From then on, from, from a long time, I had to sleep with the lights on. There was no way. I slept with my mother and father for, for a duration of weeks because of that incident. Uh, I didn't settle very well whatsoever. Um, but they said that it was, they talked to apparently a doctor and he said it must be night terrors. It's night terrors. It happens with children, da, 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 very active minds and so on and so forth. Right. Something deep down inside, though, told me that there was a lot more to this. Um, but I tried to convince myself otherwise. And it was a safer, better thing to do as a child to convince that. And uh, it helped me settle somewhat. But as time went on, I knew there was more to it. Well, that explains everything, Steve. <laughs> yeah, <it Well>, does. <laughs> you know, that explains everything. And certainly, uh, you know, setting you on the path of a, a, of a committed life of research, um, that would do it. That would, mm -hmm. that would certainly do it. I never had, I never had anything like that as a child. I had, I had experiences with my family and things, but, and I've said this many times, I never had the UFO experience. I never had anything like that. I don't remember seeing a ghost or anything paranormal or supernatural uh, growing up. Everything that I encountered in my life was as an adult. And so I don't have that element uh, with me. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Let's take our break right here. Our guest tonight, live from the United Kingdom, Steve Mara. 
international man of mystery. But not a mystery anymore, Steve. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. We'll pick up where we're leaving off when we come back after this short break. This is Fade to Black. You can follow me on Twitter at J Church Radio. You can follow Steve. Steve, what's your Twitter? Um, my Twitter was just my name, Steve Miller. There you go. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay with me. Welcome back. Fade to Black. I'm your host, Jimmy Church. Tonight, live from the United Kingdom, Steve Mara. <laughs> you know, Steve, it's like this. Okay. All right. I want to talk about Nick Pope for a second, if you don't mind. Mm. Um, Nick, of course, is going to be joining us uh, June 26th and 27th over in Manchester. But uh, much has been made over the release of said documents coming out of the MOD. And mm. and uh, what has been happening over there, it, the, when the news broke um, last week, two weeks ago, that the last pieces of these documents are, are now going to be released and they're going to be on uh, the websites over uh, government websites over there. And I, I was pretty excited and it, it was headline news over here. All of the mainstream media picked up the story. So I'm reading it and this is my take. You can tell me I'm wrong or, or not. But as I read this, this was the, civilian reports that are being released the ones that were called into the government and then they send you a questionnaire and you fill out a form and you know what deciding what whatever but mm. this is not the the british air force right this is not this is not the government's knowledge of ufos or ets or contact or their studies or their research or or anything like that this is from the civilian side that is yeah. being released am i understanding this correctly and does that mean that it's not that big of a deal well it depends on who you talk to jimmy and for me it's going a massive deal now let's just to start off with, I mean, they started releasing documents quite some time ago, and it's not the first time they've turned around and said, well, that's kind of it. We've, we've pushed them out. We, I think this is an effort for the Ministry of Defence to kind of be seen as transparent on the subject of UFOs, and this came very closely after closing down the Ministry of Defence um, Staff 2A um, reporting area of UFOs. We can't actually report them to the government anymore. They said that they were kind of no interested, uh, no interest in them anymore, and shut that department down, leaving people kind of scratching their heads. Who do they report UFOs to these days? Um, Following that, there was a release of documents, and then he kind of said, well, that's that's as much as we've got. And then they found another lot under the carpet, and they did the same thing, and, 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 they, and they're still doing so. But for me, it's really interesting, because this dispatch of information, be it the civilian documents, will tell me a lot, because whilst... Uh, I mean, a lot of people haven't been in the subject to start off with. A lot of people haven't been into UFOs in the UK long enough when Nick Pope was in office. I have. I knew Nick quite well. 
and I did correspond with Nick whilst he was in office. Now, after Nick had left, there was a number of people that took over his in, in, his, his place. Um, that was a lady called Gaynor South and Kerry Philpott. And I became quite good friends with these people. And they would willingly share information with me. We used to have conversations on the phone. And it was quite open conversations about incidents that took place. Um, now... Uh, during my work in the subjects of UFOs in the UK, there were some significant, significant incidents that took place involving police officers and numerous sightings. Um, some of these reported in the hundreds that I filed reports to the Ministry of Defence. There's documentation on this that the Ministry of Defence have, and I've never seen them released. There's about three different cases that I can I can think of that I was involved with the MOD on this, and they've never been released. So I'm hoping that these are going to be in that dispatch. Now, if they're not, it's going to tell me a lot. It's going to tell me that, hang on a second, they're still holding back some of the good stuff mm -hmm. because these were very significant cases. Um, and if they are holding back the good stuff, then that whole theory of being transparent kind of goes out the window, really, to be honest with you. And I'm sure there's still a lot more that they're probably sat on that still might not see the light of day, unfortunately. Now, what about the MOD's side of it, right, the, Royal, the RAF's side of it? Will we ever see a release of their research into this phenomenon? And do you have access to that through the same Freedom of Information Act outreach program? Unfortunately not. Not here in the UK. Um, we don't have such programs like that, which is a real shame because I'm sure we'll be filing left, right, and center for documentation. Right. Sometimes things do get out, um, just like the Holt memo. Uh, from the Bentwaters UFO incident in December 1980. Um, things do, but I mean, of course, we had to go to the US for that, you know, a lot of the information, because because it was a joint Anglo-American facility, mm -hmm. um, that information pertaining to this UFO case in the UK had to be obtained from the US. Um, and that's kind of how that came out. I mean, at the end of the day, it's pretty much locked down the UK. We don't tend to get information. There's very little is shared. And just now and again, you might just get a little hiccup where something gets released and it causes a bit of a spin. However, you know, it's pretty closed down. The UK is pretty tight. The government doesn't want to correspond with anybody in regards, in regards to subjects of UFOs anymore. There's no one to write to. There's no one to uh, to, to call. And really what people do now is um, they may, it could you could say it's a very good form of management that the process of reporting a UFO now is simply putting something up on YouTube or talking to friends and family. And those stories die very, very quickly. Unfortunately, some of them don't even get to be seen by researchers. And since the closing of the MOD, you can well imagine that a lot of reports don't come across our desk. And it's just simply because people do not know the process of how to report uh, and that's a real shame here in the uk now let, let's uh let's talk about nick for a second i like nick he's been on this program many times and what i have found is if you press nick you will get another new nugget of information that he's never talked about <laughs> before right yeah which yeah. indicates to me that nick knows things he yeah. does do you feel hmm. the same way? And and oh, you've, known, you've known him for a long time. 
do you do you push him at at points too as well to get that 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 fresh <laughs> that fresh golden nugget <laughs> of information that you didn't yeah. have before well, you know, I, I haven't pressed Nick. I understand his situation. It's very difficult, um, though that has done a great thing for ufology. Uh, at the same time, um, I haven't pressed him. I'm assuming that he, he probably is aware of information that is still considered sensitive. Um, the special areas of research, Defence Intelligence Staff 55, for example, uh, in the UK, there are, there are certain departments where they had certain information doing certain types of investigation. I'm sure Nick is aware of further information on those things, but maybe be holding some of these things back. Um, and as uh, as we approach, as we go through time, maybe there will be a little bit more information coming forward. At the end of the day, Nick might even still be in correspondence with people that are, are, are telling him that, you know, certain processes of information can be released at certain times. Um, I believe that's very probable that if you've worked at, at the department like this or for the length he did, that there is a process of releasing information at certain times and others that he might not be able to release. Of course, I think it's a matter of having to play ball, really. I think if you've worked in a department like that, you know, there has been people who suggested that Nick might still have one foot in there. I don't think that's the case. I think he's done his job. I think he's come away uh, and he's quite knowledgeable about some of the incidents that took place. But I'm sure on the grapevine, as you do, you hear things. Right. And sometimes you don't want to talk about those things. Um, it could be because that they, there's information to back up what Nick is saying has not been officially released. It could simply be that. You know, at the end of the day, I might not be released. So maybe he's, he's holding some things back until there is a physical paper trail that becomes available for some of these incidents. Now, there's a, a large part of this community, and it's the fascination with Nick, too, by the way. Um, it, there's a large part of this community that thinks that Nick is, you know, he's still part of the company. That he mm. he's he's never left, and there and you can't deny that uh, uh, that suspicion because of his previous position, you know, and you never really leave, right? Now, mm. is that is that something that we should consider with Nick? And if that is the case, I think it kicks butt. By the way, I think that makes him a really cool guy. But could <laughs> yeah. it be possible that he is? Uh, He's he's just doing his job. He could be. It could be. I mean, we don't know for sure. Would what you I be can, surprised? What, what I can what would, I can say is that Nick has shared things that he's not necessarily had to share. Right. And and that's a, that's a good thing for ufology, um, especially when we've been a bit vague on certain incidents, and it's come to light our information through Nick sharing this information. Absolutely. So it's, it's, that is important. That's the way forward. Um, despite his actions despite who and where we worked the critical information has been has been brought forward by nick which has really helped conclude on some major ufo incidents over over the period of time uh, for me I, I don't think he's working for the government i think he actually is uh, is 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 there to assist? He said that he has an interest in this subject. Is there to assist? Is there to do as much as he possibly can do? At the end of the day, though, when it comes to giving out information, maybe that there's somebody he does have to correspond with. You know, maybe there is a filtering process that right, this right. information gets out. Right. Well, I mean, would you be surprised if you found out that that Nick is 
you know, still, I mean, would it, would it be, would it surprise you? No, no, at all. It wouldn't surprise me, but right. it, it certainly wouldn't bother me. It wouldn't I mean, at the, me end, at, the, at the end of the day, um, whatever that we're being told with Nick is normally there's a paper trail. You can go and find information that leads. I mean, sometimes he's just put the dots together and said, look, guys, here's the paperwork. This is the incident. And you can draw and you can put these together and kind of work it out. You know, it's not like he's telling us information and there's no paper trail existence of this thing. Right. You know, sometimes there is paperwork, which means that obviously he's talking about a subject and a related experience or incident that's taken place where there is credible evidence to support it. Well, you bring up a great point. It's it's all good as long as the information is is solid and, like you said, has a paper trail and it can be backed up. It's another thing altogether if it's disinformation and, and that's what we're dealing with. And that wouldn't be cool. So I, I totally agree with you there. Um, I wanted to ask you, though, uh, did you ever get a chance to visit Nick in his office? Uh, no, I didn't. I could correspond with him a number of times. Um, I also was involved in a number of TV shows when Nick was also there. Um, and I've been on panels with Nick right from the early days um, when he first left um, the MOD. Um, and because everybody in the UK wondered, hey, who is this guy? You know, he suddenly turned up at a UFO conference. And there was certainly a buzz to uh, to those events because of his position. Sure. Um, however, back then, Nick wasn't saying too much. I think he was very guarded. And I think over a period of time, he's learned how much information he can release. Um, and maybe that there is more to come, but there is a systematic process of how and when that information gets released. Well, and, and I'm asking because of the now infamous photograph, the poster that he had behind his desk. Right, the of mm. of the craft in that was shot in the valley uh, there in the United Kingdom uh, by the two kids, and which he proudly displayed, showed up in his office one day, and it was gone. Right, somebody took it, mm. and it was never seen again. I was wondering if you have ever seen that picture that he has referred to so many times over the years. Uh, I have seen the picture, not through Nick, but through somebody else. Ah, Actually, I have see. seen that picture. Now <laughs> we're on. See, that, that's why we love you, Steve. <laughs> that's why we love you. Okay. Uh, what uh, What did you see in the picture? Describe it. Well, you know, obviously it was just, it was a photograph that was taken by kids and it was a UFO in the sky and you could clearly see a defined shape there. Nick had it up on <laughs> – I did hear Nick had this up. But it was, I think – because when Nick started to become more publicly orientated, because he didn't, co he's, I can show you his correspondence. They were short and sweet most of the time. Um, he started to come out a lot more information once he'd left the MOD. Um, but maybe that the whole attitude towards the subject was deemed a little bit too out there, a little bit too X-Filey, because you got to consider the time this was happening. You know, X-Files was pretty prominent in the UK, um, and hence the use to use that reference, you know, uh, um, Nick Pope is the is the you know the X Files guy, um, because it fell in line perfectly with with the TV show, and of course it, it was perfect timing. I mean, everybody wanted to know what does the government guy know. Um, when he first came along, he you know he didn't talk about too much sensitive material, but when I saw it, I recognised that that was the actual photograph. That he well, had and he said that. Out of all of the evidence that came across his desk, 
at the MOD that that was the one piece that he could say that that Absolutely. was yeah. an, an unidentified, right? That that there was no way to classify that photograph. And if there was evidence of something visiting this planet, what was in that picture would be it. Would you agree with Nick in that assessment? Um, no. <laughs> Uh, the only reasons why I wouldn't agree with Nick on that is because for the research that I've been involved in was say that we have been involved with advanced technology and flying vehicles for a considerable length of time, a long time, longer than we initially think we are. I mean, the, you know, the program on exotic, exotic aircraft is tremendous. You know, I mean, we only got to take example of the stealth fighter as an example. You know, it turned up on our TV screens in 1991 during the, um, the Gulf War, I think it was, it was televised in the UK. And we thought, what the hell is that? You know, when we saw it. And of course, he suddenly realized what the Americans had and had been hiding for a while is the stealth fighter. Now, when we realized that there was books released from 1970s showing the stealth fighter in 1973, 1974, being flown by Lockheed, we consider how long that was kept secret before we even saw it in 1991 on our TV screens. Mm -hmm. You know, we've always got to consider that there is a possibility that we have been test flying exotic aircraft for a long, long time. And the problem is, is that these things will get misidentified for sure. I'm sure the stealth fighter got misidentified, not if not hundreds if not thousands of times by people living in, 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 in sort of areas where they do test flights. And we still have that even today, the misidentification of some of these exotic flights of certain aircraft. We have it over here called the Tyrannus, which is a, an unmanned vehicle, which has been misidentified as a UFO. And I think it's been going on for quite a considerable amount of time. I think we have to go back beyond, beyond any reasonable doubt that we had the technology to do that. Um, to a point in time and say, yes, okay, now a UFO will constitute as a real UFO when we don't have certain technology, where it's impossible for us to have had technology uh, that advanced. So you're suggesting that what you saw, you have identified as the stealth fighter. This was some type of advanced aircraft that was being test flown, and these kids happened to be at the right place at the right time. I believe that a lot of tests have been carried out in the UK over the years. I know of a number of incidents that took place in the late 70s where they were definitely test flying uh, aircraft, a specialized aircraft, when Anglo-American facilities were able to test flying them and being misidentified as UFOs and occasionally being photographed and being called a UFO and the press would pick up on it and so on and so forth. And sure, the Ministry of Defense at that time would have been uh, alerted regarding these incidents, these in people reporting these things, but not necessarily have known what those objects constitute because why should the Ministry of Defence know? I mean, this is a very compartmentalised study, mm -hmm. the UFO, and mm -hmm. only people need to know will need to know about these test flights. Uh, I mean, in fact, when I talked with British Aerospace, they said, oh, well, we, you are aware that we build a Tyrannus, but when we want to test fly it, we put it on a Hercules bomber and we fly it over to the USA and fly a test flight there. Are you trying to tell me that you know that they spend all that money to send it all the way over there to test fly it? Absolute rubbish. They're going to be test flying it across the UK, across the moorlands and and, and and hills and mountain areas, and occasionally they're going to be witnessed, photographed, and seen. I believe they've probably been doing that for quite some time. 
Man, what about, uh, before we get to the break, is it the same situation uh, with Belgium and, uh, you know, the the triangles uh, that went on for years? And, I mean, they were scrambling jets and they had press conferences and this was a very public situation. Do you think that that was the TR-3B and it was just, uh, you know, test flying or do you think it was something extraterrestrial? Well, I've always thought the TR-3B was ours. I mean, it's it's built aerodynamic. It's aerodynamic. It's built to fly in our atmosphere. If it's coming from space, a brick will fly in space. You know, I mean, it's a, at the end of the day, you know, when you do back research, you start to find out there was a TR-3A, you know, the, um, um, the Black Mantra. And, of course, that had references in the UK as well. Um, and there were conversations in the early 1980s between officials regarding the Black Mantra um, and Anglo facilities, uh, American and UK facilities here, here in the UK, where they were allegedly kept or being flown. So we have to consider the fact that those things might actually be our tech. It could really be our technology. Um, however, when you want to parade these things in certain villages or places around the world, people are going to naturally shout and point up to the sky and say UFO, which is great for any authority who's trying to hide these things because it immediately takes the blame away from them and onto something else. Um, but I do believe there's a, a true UFO phenomenon, but I think it's become a time now where it's, ex, it's extraordinarily difficult to identify the difference between the real phenomena and the what you might refer to as advanced technology. Right, right, yeah. And I agree with you. Uh, the one thing that I take issue with when it comes to Belgium and, and what went on uh, for a couple of years is that here we are in 2020, and we are not seeing fleets of TR-3Bs. It seems like it stopped, and it stopped as quick as it started. And where did that technology go? And that would suggest to me an ET component, only because it hasn't been revealed. The stealth fighter's been revealed. All right, the B-2 bomber's been revealed. We're looking at the F-22 now and the 35, and we know what the yeah. Russians have and, and as advanced as these fighter jets are and this technology, we're not seeing TR-3Bs, and we're not seeing fleets of this technology, and we're not seeing it like we were over Belgium. That's, that's where I just kind of stop and scratch my yeah. head. I mean, it was a perfect incident. I mean, if you really want to put this to the test – you have a live action event. You don't inform anybody of anything and you get real scenario unfolding, which is perfect. I mean, it's, we do that in, in the army, in, in, in the forces. When we want a special training to uh, take place, we don't inform the squadron what's going to happen whilst they're out. They'll just be an ambush situation or a situation that they have to suddenly face to get true statistics. And I think that is a perfect opportunity over Belgium to be test, tested against Belgium's best air force um and the situation unfolded as it should do as a real component which can be studied and look to those conclusions and say okay we're getting true statistics here you know and we can only get that from people not knowing about these events and what's going to occur uh, i think i think it could have been a perfect exercise to be done i mean the black triangles are still you know but they are still being seen i've seen one myself and they are quite amazing um and they are seen around the world. But 
According to information, these were initially referred to as platform vehicles and were allegedly manufactured and flown um, in the in the mid 1960s, and whilst we're all focusing on the the landing of the uh, of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin on the moon in 60, 60 was it about sixty nine? Yes, we we were probably flying these things in low orbital paths in 1965 we can see a massive divide with technology here and i think it's that massive divide and it's because probably what because of what the technology consists of is why we see this not coming forward i mean how long has the stealth bomber been out there it's been out there for a long time you can go and see this at uh, air shows and things you try getting near it though that's a whole different ball game try finding out the the information about what it actually consists of how does it take off on a runway which is half the size it needs you know what type of tech is it using and you'll start to find that it's utilizing certain technology that they do not want out and that's the reason why you can't get hands-on on a stealth bomber you know um you might be able to see one at an air show and so on and so forth but when it starts getting to the crutch of the matter you're not going to get near one uh, and that's probably because it involves certain technology it's being utilized in in the in the bomber's wings to give it lift um, and this electromagnetic field around it reduces its weight vastly to do so. This specialised technology, is, I think, is that's, that's what keeps us from this information coming forward, that we might have these platform vehicles and have these capabilities, but it's the tech that's involved. Because when you start asking where the tech is come from, that's where it starts getting a bit tricky. Let's take our break right here. Our guest tonight, Steve Mara, live from Manchester. Steve, great conversation. We'll pick it up where we are leaving off right now. This is Fade to Black. I'm your host, Jimmy Church, on the Game Changer Network and KGRA, The Planet. Stay with us. Fade to Black, I am your host, Jimmy Church. Tonight, live from the UK, Steve Mara. And I want to remind everybody, June 26th and 27th, 2020, we will be over in the UK at the Awakening Conference in Manchester with uh, Eric Von Daniken and Richard Dolan, Nick Pope, uh, Grant Cameron. We're going to be talking about this a little bit later. Uh, Twelve other speakers, special guests. And uh, just go to, for tickets and information, awakeningufo.com. We'll talk more about this at the top of the hour. But, uh, Steve, I wanted to have, I, I want to stay on the international side of research for a second. And um, I want to talk about a subject that um, is, is uncomfortable for many. Uh, it certainly was for me. I did... I did go in. I, I went down the rabbit hole uh, with uh, Richard D. Hall, and I haven't heard much of Richard uh, lately. What happened to Richard D. Hall? And, of course, I'm talking about the, the touchy subject of human mutilations. We did a lot of research out there with Linda and others on cattle mutilations and things, but the subject of human mutilations is uh, 
is a heavy one, and Richard was front and center with all of that. Where is he these days? Uh, well, <laughs> that's a good question. I mean, a lot of people have been asking that question to me in the UK. Um, I'm good friends with Richard. I've lectured alongside him. I last saw him probably about three or four years ago, um, and he was still prominently lecturing. I know he's had a number of issues with his TV channel, mm-hmm. um, which was going out across in the UK. Um, one minute it wasn't on, and then it was back, and then it wasn't. And I know that because there was controversy over, they didn't like what was actually he was researching. He was a very bold researcher. He asked questions, people that even I wouldn't ask. And I, I credit him, and I have credited him many times for his bravery. Uh, he was a bit of a low man and going for it, and uh, fantastic. Things, I think, changed when he settled down and he had a child. And I think that that was an impact um, on his research because one can always, uh, when you're alone, al- when you're a loner and you go out there and you do this research and you haven't got people connected to you in that manner, then you know you can be a little bit more f- uh, forward in your investigation sure, questions. Sure. But now, with a since he's had a little come on the scene, um, it, I believe he, it looks like he's just taken a step back. Um, I'm not pressing these very important issues that people kind of don't talk about. Um, I, I've certainly done my research in the, in, that, in that area as well, but it's it's a bit of a taboo area. Uh, it's not welcome at uh, a lot of different places, these conversations, um, but it is something that still does continue. The the one thing that Richard had the freedom of, and and especially back when he was, uh, uh, how do I say, he was he was an influencer. He was a big part of this community, but he had his uh, brilliant website. Uh, a lot of technology invested into it. He had his uh, his network, his t- television network, and and his radio program, and nobody, I, I mean nobody asked a question like Richard D. Hall. <laughs> yeah. I mean, nobody, right. nobody. Oh, man, <laughs> he had, you know, he had me on the edge of my seat because I, mm. as an interviewer, would be reticent to go into the zones that he did. But he he continued this for years, and his, his, his knowledge of the subject is second to none. Um, and when we talk about human mutilations and you're going to go out and look at for evidence of this and question and, and you know, go throughout the country looking into this very sensitive issue, there are going to be people that push back. And that's what he encountered, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there were people saying regularly to him that he shouldn't talk about these sort of things. Um, you can consider that the reasons why, obviously, you know, if these incidents are truly happening, then there is some concern in regarding panicking people. Um, so that's kind of the main reason. Of course, there are people who won't want this information out. And, of course, Richard was like a, a dog chasing a bone. He would never leave it um, to the point where, you know, people would get angry with him, aggressive with him. I'm sure he's had a few threats in his time. Sure. Um, you know, so it's, it, isn't, it isn't for everybody, I admit. I mean, you'll find that most of the researchers in the field have delved into it somewhat um, and kind of put it on the shelf. Because did you? It, well, did, it, it is a, t- a bit of a taboo. It is. It is. Did you? Did you jump into the research? Well, I was actually 
it, <laughs> for me, I was quite shocked. Um, I was invited in, I think it was 1998, there was an, an organisation called Quest International, uh, run by Tony Dodd, a researcher in the UK. Right, he was right. a police officer. Right. He'd had his own UFO experience and opened this organisation, and they had regular reasonably large conferences in the UK in Sheffield and Leeds and I was invited along and I met up with Bob Dean, some researchers will know Bob Dean um, he was in, involved in the Shape Report um, and he'd been involved in the in the study of UFOs for quite some time uh, and had lectured around the year he, was in, he had visited the UK a few times but he was mostly known for his work throughout the US and he had met up with Tony Dodd and a couple of other gentlemen, and during the conference, I was invited to attend a meeting which took place upstairs. It was a private meeting. It wasn't for the public. Um, I was introduced to two other gentlemen who I do not know who they were, um, and Bob was sat there as well as Tony Dodd, and on the table in front of me were five very large reports now, taking into consideration Tony Dodd was an active police officer um, at one point and certainly had um, connections with people and research and investigations that may be carried out, these reports were opened up and a short conversation took place in regarding human mutilations and I saw five uh, reports on this table, including photographs, including references to the names of these people who were, by all accounts, according to the photography and the information, were uh, exhibiting exactly the same things as, as animal mutilations. Um, and they had been found um, and they had been somewhat of a cover-up in regarding um, the, the deaths and how they had occurred. Um, some of them were still listed as apparently still missing, I believe, two or three of them, uh, and hadn't come to light. Uh, I don't know how these reports came to be on that desk. I'm assuming it's something to do with the other two gentlemen that did not give them their, their, their information. Uh, and a conversation took place of, about how these things have been going on for a considerable length of time, and that there are at least five or six of these reports available uh, to only a handful of people in the UK. I believe Richard D. Hall managed to get those very same reports I saw um, because he has openly mentioned that he has um, had five or six reports and there's something to do with Tony Dodd. So I'm assuming those are exactly the same reports that I've seen. And they, they were pretty, yeah, they were scary and uh, very concerning. And it wasn't something that was brought to the general public at that time. It was very sensitive and probably still is quite a sensitive area. I, you saw, I, I'm getting a little chilly right now. It's, you know, it's a pretty creepy subject. You, you did get a chance to open up these reports and look at them and you saw photographs of the victims? I did. One of them was a girl who was still classed as missing. Um, she'd never been found. Um, and she was identified as this girl and she was showing that she had been you know, mutilated like, you know, like animals had been. Um, and the photographs were, were pretty, yeah, they were taken, professional photographs. So I'm assuming that the this was an investigation by the police and someone along those lines have not released this information, and which is shocking. It's terrible. There's an injustice there for the family. 
Um, however, I believe that there was considerably more than what we were just being shown. There probably was more. Um, and I was seriously concerned at the time. I, I, I thought, what, what, and why am I even there? Why am I, why am I actually being shown these documents? So I've been invited along. And, I was only because I was close with Tony Dodd at the time, maybe that it was just come and have a look at this. You're going to be shocked. It was kind of one of those things. Um, I don't think he realized how shocked I actually was because I'd, I'd heard rumors about these things, especially since the, the incident of the gentleman it was found in, I think it was Mexico, um, uh, of a human mutilation case. And that was the only one I was aware of. Um, until I saw these and that put a whole new perspective as in regards to this phenomena uh, and how widely it could be taking place. Yeah, well, obviously, this kind of knowledge gets out. Uh, we do have panic in the streets. There's no question about that. But that That's genuine fear. The other part of this, though, Steve, is when we are experimenting on animals, here on this planet, we do that for mm -hmm. lots of different reasons. Uh, we do that, but also the hunting that we do or going into a jungle and looking for new species and cap bagging and tagging and bringing them out for our own research and dissecting and the things that we do in the lab, dissecting frogs in your sophomore year in high school and biology mm. class, the one thing we always feared that day when you were going to dissect your first frog. These are things that we do. Would there be a way to look at it if E.T. is coming to this planet and we are just frogs to E.T.? Is, is that just mm. outside of the realm of possibility? And I would say, <laughs> no, it's not. And it... I'm not okay with it, but we have to maybe consider that 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 situation, shouldn't we? We should. I mean, it's not a new phenomena. I mean, I talked with a gentleman who was a doctor, actually, an Indian gentleman who contacted me, and he told me about his grandfather. And then when you're living in in India, he lived on a, a farm. Um, it was a farming community, and occasionally the lights would come down from the mountains and the young children were sent out, rushed out to get the animals in, the stock in as quickly as possible under shelter because they would often be found uh, mutilated. Now, that, when I talk about, well, it's 1913, that would, the incident would have been in India, farmland. Um, and if we're talking 1913, you know, question how long these things have been going on for. I've done a considerable length of research in the mutilation phenomena. Uh, we're talking with people from all around the world. It isn't something new. It has been going on for a long time. In fact, the UK had its own spate of mutilations in 1993 was the, was the, was the main year. But what mostly we had was mutilated deer, um, uh, foxes, um, uh, and even birds, you know, chickens and, and things like that. It, it, it was ridiculous, the, the, we had, the amount we had in 1993. We do have the odd cow and, you know, which, uh, and larger animals that do uh, off, have, are, are found like in, this ma in exactly the same manner. I wrote a document with my colleague. Um, he had done some 
great research, my colleague, um, him and his wife, Barry Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. who's on uh, a number of projects with me. And one of them was the investigation into these um, animal mutilations. And we actually sent this document over to Linda Morton Howe. Now, Linda Morton Howe is, you know, she's specialized in, in this research for quite some time, as we know. And from what we were seeing, from the blood being taken and from the soft tissue being taken was something referred to as mucous membrane collection. Um, And this is all to do with the immune system. Now, all these locations where we see the organs missing, soft tissue missing, the blood, is associated to where locations you'll find mucous membrane, which is associated to the immune system. Now, when we talk to pathologists and they tell us that you know, animals, these animals that have been found mutilated were, and it's, it's awful, this is why I don't like normally talk about these things, these horrible things to say, but these animals were alive at the time these incidents happened. Mm-hmm. And they're alive because they generate huge amounts of fear. Mm-hmm. And that amount of fear causes certain chemicals to be released in the brain, which increases the immunity system tenfold. And what happens is, is that where the gathering of that material is done through the process of, of taking blood, up to 10 gallons from cattle in some cases, um, and soft tissue and even organs. And that's the same, not only applies to just cattle, it applies to most animals, most and even humans actually as well. It's not a new phenomenon. I mean, if we even go back and look at the diet loft past. Now, I know that um, my partner, uh, Jackie, she has been researching the Dyatlov Pass incident, which was an incident that took place in 1959 in Russia, as well as um, I know Tracy uh, Garbert Dolan, uh, Richard's wife, is also very much in, um, involved in research in, in that particular case as well. And that particular incident involved a number of people and clearly they were mutilated you know and there was a a mass cover-up in regarding this incident this was from 1959 so we have to consider that the phenomenon has been going on quite a lot over the years um going back longer than we necessarily thought and there is a process of why this is being done. In fact, most of the most recent research shows that a lot of these animals are actually dropped from height. One was in, in, I think it was in Colorado last year, was found in a tree. You know, they, when they dropped this cow, it actually landed in a tree and got caught in the tree. Some of them are impacting on the ground and they're breaking ribs and backbones and things, and they clearly can tell this animal has been dropped from height. Um, these things are still going on quite regularly, but we don't hear them so much. I mean, the press aren't picking up on them as much as they would. Maybe that they're suppressing information, but these things do get out and people do talk. There's, uh, uh, I, I released my list of uh, top 10 UFO cases that that intrigued me. I did this uh, last month or the month before, but the top of my list, I think number two, actually, uh, on my list is Rendlesham. There's a lot of reasons why it's there, but of course, when you have uh, the witnesses, you know, still alive to such a dramatic event, uh, that we can interview. We have the documentation uh, that that is applied to it in the HALT memo that you mentioned earlier. All of that is in play with Rendlesham. But there's another thing that is in play in Rendlesham that we don't understand over here in the United States, and that is the drama that is playing out in the United Kingdom <laughs> with the yes. different players involved. 
And mm. I haven't seen this type of anger uh, in any UFO case. I mean, it is pretty dramatic over there in the United Kingdom. Why the drama, Steve? And I know that you've, you know, you're, you're not necessarily a part of it, but you're mm. certainly there to observe. What's going yeah. on, man? Well, it's messy. I mean, to be honest, I mean, everybody knows in the UK about the Rendlesham Forest. It's our main incident. You know, it's the, it's the one that put the UK on the map sure. regarding UFOs. And it's very personal. We're only a very small island. There's only a certain amount of researchers, and it becomes a very personal case. For me, you know, I, my first involvement was very early on. Um, I think it was in 1990. You know, 1991, I visited the location. I wasn't interested in, I, I'd heard everything I possibly could. I was good friends with, with Peter Robbins and I heard everything I possibly could, but I was interested in the trees. I was interested in the storm damage that in, in that area that managed to clear people out of that area for a long duration of time uh, and literally topsoil being taken from those locations. You know, the whole area was, uh, was locked off from the general public because of a very unusual freak storm which took place in that location and came in almost immediately after the incident happened now for me i was interested in in the research on the trees you know i mean the, i was looking at trees which were up to two meters wide which were snapped at the trunk now you can you can't tell me what type of wind does that um it snaps a, a two meter tree uh, at the trunk uh, completely um, and this was very focused damage um, other places weren't touched at all um, and it just seemed to be specific locations close if not right where the location happened uh, the incident happened now or you do your research, you'll find that Rendlesham Forest is no stranger to the paranormal. I mean, the forest itself is has a, an immense amount of paranormal incidents that take place. And ufologically, if you research, you'll find Rendlesham uh, and Bentwaters is in that location of, uh, of, of Ipswich where there have been plentiful UFO experiences and people having sightings of UFOs long before 1980. So let's put that on the map first, that this is a location which is renowned for phenomena, be it paranormal or ufological. Then what happens is, is that researchers become so dedicated to the, to the, to the case that when there is a problem, when something occurs, when one person says something, then somebody else says something else, there's a confliction. You've got 50% of people believing one person, 50% believing people the other, and of course, the, you have this conflict of interest. And that gave people the opportunity to thrive upon a case, which is, for me, it, it's a relatively old case. I wouldn't spend the time. I think the, I, I was taught by my mentors, the longer a case has gone on, the harder it is to get credible, raw information. You have to get it quick. You have to get it fast. And in what you get early on is probably the most credible. As time goes on, it gets filtered and watered and watered and watered. And little bits of distruth come and get involved in those cases. Now investigating something like that and researching it was probably is probably worthless because they're trying to get to the raw data now after so, such a long period of time is is next to impossible but i was you know i was sat in the middle watching this unfold left right and center and i just never got involved i said to all parties involved in the uk do not post on on rendlesham 
uh, on my social media. I don't get involved in Rendlesham right. um, because you, you can't be seen to take sides. So I just stayed neutral. I just said, look, you know, I'm interested in the case. It's a fascinating incident. But for me, it's about the evidence and what is new data is there now that could possibly be rewarding. And unfortunately, I don't think any of it is. You know, there might be some good bits in there, but unfortunately, it's got mixed in with all the bad stuff. And that's what's happened to this particular case. It's become a very messy case. And maybe that was the way it was supposed to be. Because when we certainly, when there was a certain amount of interest in this uh, case, when Nick Nick's book came out, that there's a spotlight put on uh, Bentwaters and the incident again, and press were picking up uh, on it, and there were new interests being developed, and all of a sudden this happens, and of course it causes corruption in the ranks, you could say, and a case which has been loved by many is suddenly been one now which is kind of shunned and said, well, you know, I don't even want to get involved in that because it's too messy now. Maybe there was a purpose to that. I really don't know, but it's a shame because I've seen friends divided on either side, friends that I would say I'm friends with both size but it's very very difficult you get caught up in the middle of this thing for me it's about the raw data for me it's about the evidence and if there's nothing new to gather um you know 20 30 years on which is credible and worthy for that case then you know i have to step aside and agree with people you know uh i agree with fellow researcher peter robbins and the work that he's been involved in um and he was he was you know he he was stuck in the middle as many people have been in this case but the truth of the matter is is that it's a phenomenon it's been going on there for a long 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 time uh long before the actual incident took place in 1980 i totally agree going back the original evidence the original evidence, the tapes, the audio recordings, uh, the halt memo, the original witness testimony, we can stop right there. The only part about it that, uh, because I know that the incident happened, right? And yeah. and I've had uh, John Burroughs, I've, I've had everybody on the show at one point. I've had everybody that was there yeah. on this program, uh, some of them multiple times. But John Burroughs, uh, I did two shows with him where we absolutely went step by step, day by day, minute by minute, you know, from beginning to end on that. And pulling those details out of out of John, and each time, you know, there's a little bit, you know, a little more memory, a little more detail. But I have told everybody, that's kind of like the end all and be all of the case. If you got any questions about it, Go listen to those interviews. Your questions are going to be answered, and, and that's where it stands today. Because mm. now we've got real friendships that are severed. We've got, you know, instead of everybody being, you know, together on this, on this very important case and and, and representing it uh, and pushing it forward, we don't have that today. I mean, it's, mm. it's gotten bad. And it didn't need to be this way. Maybe, maybe that was the ultimate plan, you know, by both governments, you know, to have the, you know, the dissension amongst the troops. Could be. I don't know.
Right? Yeah, it does happen. It doesn't happen very often with cases, but it does happen. You can imagine if it was happening with Roswell. You know, suddenly there was a new witness that came forward and said, well, it didn't happen like that. This is what happened. And of course, you know, now people are going to be following that. Is this something to gain after all those many years? I think I think we can lose where we're going with this. I think you can spend far too much time in things that don't provide enough evidence. It's all about evidence for me. I mean, I, mean, you know, I love great stories and I hear plenty of them, but for me it's all about is there evidence you know is that person there is the evidence to back it up you know what evidence is there you know and at the end of the day i would be only looking at the critical parts of that case where evidence lies everything else i put on the shelf i'd listen to it take it on board but i'd be put on the shelf because i couldn't take it as credible unless i uh, accept the fact that there is enough evidence to support it yeah, I agree with you. And uh, let's take our break right here. I've said so many times, Steve, that uh, when it comes to Roswell, the best piece of evidence, that original newspaper release. That's it, right? <laughs> yeah. The original press release. Couldn't agree with you more. This is Fade to Black. Our guest, Steve Mara. More with Steve live from the UK after this short break. Stay with us. Welcome back. Fade to Black. I'm your host, Jimmy Church, live from the UK tonight. Steve Mara. What a great conversation. I'm watching Twitter, and I I think everybody recognizes what should be recognized, and, and that is, Steve, that you are very open. You're very honest. Uh, you're not you're not hiding behind things and that's never been what you uh you know what you are about you've always been up front and if something is wrong uh you're gonna go straight there like we did with the mylar balloon a couple of years ago you mm. did you did not play around with that when others you know just thought that we should leave that alone but that's not who you are you are always going to just be what whatever the evidence is you're gonna let the chips fall right Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I've I've seen real phenomena out there, and it does exist. Absolutely, one hundred percent does exist. I don't mind skeptics. I do really do not mind because I was skeptical myself, and I believe you do have to experience it. You do have to see these things to accept it, and nothing less. Just as I had, uh, I had to change my opinion. It was a bit of a wake up call, but I did uh, in the nineteen nineties. But I, I've always called it as it is. Yeah, and I think because we want to get. F- further along in this subject and sometimes we've got to push things aside to get there you know otherwise i think we'll, the subject will become static and we'll end up going round in circles adding another stone to the mountain we've already got and now uh, i want to talk about the awakening conference and and for me what makes this so different and let's actually start there the as far as europe goes um, is are there other events uh, throughout Europe that are are of this size, or is this the premier event in Europe? Uh, this is the largest event in Europe. There are some smaller um, conferences that do take place. There's a, a few in the UK, both small ones and uh, and overseas and throughout Europe. Um, however, this is the the largest of its kind. Um, has been now for this is our fourth year 
going into our fourth year of the events, um, getting bigger and stronger each time. Um, at first, you know, we, we we didn't know what the the people of the of Manchester were going to were going to be like. To be honest with you, the very first one we put together, it was kind of fingers crossed. Let's see how we go. And we were absolutely stunned when 2,000 people walked through our door and and were just amazed. We're just amazed to see the reactions. It was certainly something the UK needed. Um, there were so many people into the subject and really wanted answers. And they had nowhere to go. You know, a lot of people weren't traveling overseas to, to the big events in the US. Um, and this happening in the UK for them was just a godsend. And we have a hard following of the same about about 2,000 people that do turn up at our events and, uh, and make it fully enjoyable. Uh, one thing what we wanted to do um and that's a critical thing and, and you can tell when an organize you can tell when people are into the subject that run these events because they are considering where we're going in the future and for us it was all about when we initially opened our doors to the to this event is about how we're going to keep the younger generation interested and what we did is is that we kind of made it a little bit like a comic-con we started introducing um um uh, things to the event such as uh, props star wars props and characters and different things we've had all sorts of different things there a full-size ufo was built and that was placed in the hangar we have this event in a hangar it's like a big hangar 18 it's huge and um though that it's it's just kind of everybody just goes in there and enjoys it and we were seeing people coming with the families and there were young guys there i was talking to him 15 14 15 year olds and they were absolutely interested in the subject but they you know they, they were coming with their families and on many occasions that's what i wanted to see that's what i'd love to see because i've got to consider where we all are going to be in 20 30 40 years time who's going to be up there on the on the podium talking about this phenomena where we're going in the future so for me it was really important that we we kind of make this a family enjoyable event and uh, and it, it went really well i was very surprised well and and what i think is great here is out of uh, the the fifteen uh, main speakers, nine are coming over from North America for this event, and that's mm. it, 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 that's got to be special for the United Kingdom because uh, a lot of us don't get a chance or an opportunity uh, to make it over and uh, and hang out, do we? No, we don't. I mean, it's, it just, unfortunately, it doesn't happen very often. Um, however, we wanted to give people those options to be able to see, meet, greet these speakers one-to-one uh, -one as well, because it's okay listening to people on the internet, but it's not the same. And people really do want to get a first-hand knowledge. Uh, and meeting these, these speakers for the very first time was incredible. I remember um, uh, Linda Morton Howe and her first... Uh, appearance at awakenings and i remember linda pulling me aside and saying that she was overwhelmed with the amount of people that were there for her lecture the the, the hall was full we had standing at the back i mean it was there must have been about 1500 to 2000 people in there and she'd said that she she probably had never lectured to so many people at one given time and to her that was very special and it has been for many of our speakers that come along because manchester they're very friendly they all love this subject and they just all really want to have a good time and walk away with some knowledge and at the end of the day it's been very successful and we're very pleased 
Yeah, Linda, uh, right after that, uh, she comes up to me, and I, I, I'm not kidding about this. Uh, if she hears me recount this story, she's just going to laugh. She goes, Jimmy, i got to show you this picture. And I said, okay, what's up? And she takes out her phone. She goes, this is what I just did over in the U.K., right? <laughs> she goes, <laughs> She goes, look at this crowd. She goes, we had barriers in front. I've never seen, you know, and and I'm looking at the picture, and and she said it was the funnest experience of my life, and she was so happy about that. Me, I was jealous. I was like, man, I <laughs> I, I want to hang out with you, Linda, because that looks like a tremendous event. And now, uh, Rita and I get to go over and actually participate and host this thing. It's going to be amazing. And you you do something that's a little bit different. And uh, oh oh oh. Before uh, we talk about how the venue is split, because uh, you have two main stages, two main rooms there. I, I, I want to get into that for a second. But you have a Star Wars cafe, right? It's like the, oh, it's yes. like the bar from Star Wars. Am I understanding this right? It, it is. It's exactly the same. You wouldn't know the difference, to be honest with you. And that is available for, for use. And we, we we do have props and things as well. So we, have a, we make it as fun and interactive as possible as we can. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't. I, no, seriously, I can't wait. Okay, so you've well, got. Uh, I have a great idea, Jimmy. I have a great idea. When you get up there on stage, yep. is do a do a selfie with the crowd behind you, just to show how many people are actually there. You know, because you don't get to see that very often. You know, right. people take photographs of the speakers, but they don't really know how many are actually there listening to these these lectures. You know, and it's incredible. You know, it's a great idea. You know, get a selfie. From the stage, with them all behind you, you'll see how many people there. It's absolutely stunning. Hello, Manchester. I can't wait. So uh, you've got two. You, you've got this ginormous airplane hangar, mm. and the entire event is held inside. But you've got it sliced up. Um, uh, tell me how that works. Well, I mean, <laughs> we had some initial plans of being, you know, maybe paint it on the side, Area 51 or Hangar 18 or something, just for the laugh. But uh, it is a huge hangar. And we have the option of being setting it up the way we want to set it up, to be honest with you. And we have the options of two different stages um, at the event, Hangar 1, Hangar 2, we call it. And there are different, there's also something referred to as a Gaia Lounge as well. Now, we are going to have all these things going on. So people have an option to go to different places and listen to different people um, talk about what their experiences or their research. Um, and it's also very interactive as well. The Gaia Lounge is very interactive. It's going to be going on throughout the whole event. And, um, and we'll be joined with uh, Gaia's very own Sid Goldberg, who's going to be doing uh, some, a number of very interesting interviews uh, at, at that location. And we on hand, Hangar 2 and Hangar 1 is split between different lecturers and... Um, that people have a choice as to who they actually want to go and see. And uh, we have, uh, I, I love it, the Hangar One stage, especially for Richard and I, uh, to be doing that. But uh, we are going to be bringing uh, Fade to Black over to the United Kingdom. And I'm very excited about this. And we are going to be doing what we are calling Fader X, where we are going to have uh, a number of researchers get up and speak for 10 minutes each on only one question. And 
I, I think that the audience is is going to really remember this type of concept as opposed to, you know, we love going to lectures and we love going to presentations, but you want to put a fresh spin on this, and certainly we do too. I think this is pretty exciting. What do you think about Fader I X? Think, I think it's a great idea. I don't, it's never been done before as far as I'm concerned, Not certainly not here in the UK. Right. I mean, we have had panels and uh, and we have had just general lectures, but nothing like this. And I think it's really good that you can actually get to the core. I mean, if it's a specialised question that's put to a lecturer, and they've got 10 minutes to, you know, to, to put their their views forward on that particular question that's good because that doesn't really happen in, in in these panels i see they're quite varied questions and uh, and everybody has the the same way of answering the question sometimes you know i've i've heard lecturers on these panels and they've had the same thing to say really because the question is geared in a way where there is only one answer you know i think it'd be really good to actually find what these people are going to say. i'm going to be really interested what these people are going to say for 10 minutes on given questions i think it's unique i think it's going to be fascinating yeah because 10 minutes sounds like a long time it is not and you have to uh, absolutely condense your best thoughts into just 10 minutes and that's when, you know, you are going to get the brilliant side of each one of these uh, researchers and authors and personalities because all of them talk too much, right? All of them, <laughs> right? They, they're too used to that. And, and so yep. to, to uh, force them, right, to get their mind into just 10 minutes, I think that's going to be exciting. I, I can't oh, imagine yes. what the audiences, you know, how they're going to react to that. It's going to be a lot of information coming at them. There is. It's going to be information overload, but it's going to be the best of the best of that information. Because if you've got 10 minutes to give out, you're going to give out the best stuff. That's really, really condensed. Now, I, I can imagine that uh, an event like this, uh, not only because of its uniqueness, but of its size and its impact on the community, that... Uh, the local media uh, must be involved. I would think, uh, is the BBC coming out? Do they cover it on the news? Well, we did have the BBC come out last year. They did actually a full television programme at Awakenings, uh, which was which was great for us. Um, and there are numerous different media that turn up on the day, including podcasts and radio teams and so on and so forth. Um, we are also going to have a number of people coming from Media Invest Entertainment. Um, we're also going to be blessed with some of the uh, MPs and council people uh, from Blackpool in regard to a very specialised new project which is coming forward, which we'll be announcing at Awakenings. Um, and there's a few also hidden surprises as well, which are yet to uh, wet, <laughs> yet to come out. A bit nearer the time, probably. Now, what about uh, Fade to Black is coming to town, and Rita and I like to party. Uh, do we have any events like that scheduled? I'm sure we can sort something out, Jimmy. Yeah, I mean, we've taken people. Numerous, usually we come with a little wish list. You know, they say, we're coming to Manchester. I'd like to do this, 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 and this. You know, <laughs> especially for those which are football fans because uh, soccer in the UK is a big thing and it's, it's followed worldwide, especially regarding two main teams, Manchester United, Manchester City. And there are numerous different lecturers out there which are fans and they love to visit the location because we are literally um, five minutes 
minutes from uh, from uh, Old Trafford Manchester United ground and we are 15 minutes away from Manchester City's football ground as well so you know we tend to get little these little wish lists that come along yeah right on and this uh, the Star Wars the bar the cafe this is on site is this a place where we can eat and drink and 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 use it as a lounge is that what it is well, there will be a, a dedicated area for lecturers to to relax because it's full on. You know, sometimes we you know we understand that lecturers are you know they're, they're there and there's so many people want to wanting to ask questions. We do need an area, obviously, for lecturers to just you know take a pew five minutes to themselves just to rest up. You do need to do that sometimes because uh, it can be heavy going. But at the same time, we do have the Star Wars Lounge, which is basically open all the time for people to go and get something to drink. We do have a cafes there as well, and there is um, uh, places to eat. Um, so, but this, the, the actual <laughs> the cantina is pretty amazing. Uh, people love to take photographs in there because we have uh, Star Wars characters, which uh, which are in there as well. And what about uh, tickets and information? How much how much does this cost? Well, they vary. The prices vary on the ticketing. Um, that depending on you know if they just want to come for the one day, uh, which is the Friday, or they want to come for the Saturday event as well. Um, the Friday evening is more of a specialised event, um, or they can actually book the whole thing. You know, have the Friday and the Saturday together. So tickets vary depending on what people really want um, to come and do. Um, it's on from for Friday evening. Friday tea time right through to evening and this is a conference that kind of goes late on into the night I mean you know we're not finishing until about 11 o'clock 11 p.m. you know and a lot of these conferences and things tend to to wrap up around seven or eight o'clock but we, we go through to, to 11 o'clock um, and of course those are locations are available to all, to all generally all the public you can obtain uh, the details as to the different types of ticketing pricing and the days available throughout the website and uh, I wanted I, I did want to mention this uh, because uh, when you look at the diversity of the speakers where, you know, you've got Eric Von Daniken this year and Billy Carson and Grant Cameron and Paul Sinclair and, of course, Richard Bleep and Dolan um, and, you know, Nick Pope and uh, Richard's wife, Tracy, uh, Daryl Sims. Um, and I, I think that we should no longer say uh, Richard's wife, Tracy. She is truly uh, risen uh, as such a dynamic personality in this community, Tracy Garbett. Um, but uh, Chris Turner, Laura Eisenhower, you know, uh, Paola Harris and uh, Barry, of course, is going to be there. And, and Sid Goldberg, very, very wide range of of ideas and theories and experiences uh, with this kind of lineup, right? Mm, yeah, because they've all got something critical. I mean, if you actually look at the awakenings this this year, we we have like kind of um, a, a logo, and under there it says a new beginning. And the reason is is that we want to push forward with research in this subject. Now, we often talk about ufology and paranormal and different things like that, but we tend to be working around in the same circle, yearing year out not many people are coming to the table and saying well you know this is extra this is what we've learned this is a way forward it's opening new areas of research we're moving forward rather than staying static and this is about what we, what that feel is about in this conference it's about new information it's about moving forward with these subjects and developing new areas of research because we all want answers 
I'm hoping that we get more within my lifetime because, you know, people have been sat on this secret for a long, long time, well over 70 years with the US government. And I think there are plenty of things that we can be doing. It's just that we need to push that forward. And this is this kind of broken into this title, a new beginning, because each and every person that's going to be coming along is delivering new bits of information that's going to be pushing forward into new areas of research and where we may need to go. The uh, the other part of the and, – and Steve, I don't know what your schedule is for the rest of the day over in the United Kingdom, but – uh, can I can I get you to hang on after this break and let's do a little oh, yeah. overtime uh, because I, I just I we're, we are running out of time. How many uh, how many people do you expect at at this conference and can this center where you are at right now handle these kind of numbers? I'm sure the answer is yes, but. If it's going to grow, are you going to stay at this location or is there another bigger place in Manchester to move into? Well, it's funny you mention that because we are going to be announcing um, the birth of a new convention where waiting is going to be kind of being modified and a new location is currently being uh, built as we speak and uh, will be available for us a new convention center and it's going to be held there um we are going to have to be moved i mean i think the numbers are growing each and every year the numbers are growing we are expecting between 2000 and 2500 people uh, to attend this event and potentially there could be two to two and a half thousand people in one lecture they have the choice to do so and when that happens the atmosphere the energy is 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 just crazy i've never experienced that and i've been to the biggest conferences around the world as you know jimmy along with yourself but you don't tend to get that many people gathering at one particular lecture, they're usually uh, dispersed into different numbers of different lectures. Um, that does happen at our event, and uh, it's something that lecturers don't often experience. And when they do, that is it's certainly notable. The uh, the community has grown, and the reason why I think that you are very cognizant of that in the numbers is because what you and Vitaly are in the middle of. You guys are running media. You guys uh, uh, have your YouTube presence. You you have this conference. Uh, you have uh, film and television production and things that you are working on. And it seems like for the first time, the this is a growth industry, right? It's not going backwards. It's it's that there is a huge interest in the subject these days, right? There is. I mean, we're constantly battling platforms, uh, you know, across the internet because there is a squeeze on this subject that has been for a long time, and um, and it, and those things do become more difficult as time goes on. Though we're finding new areas, new ways to push this information out, and people are gravitating to certain locations now where they can find out critical information, and it's about where to go to find that information because it's it's dispersed massively over the internet. It's takes forever to search for certain things if it's great to uh, to have everything on one place then so it be and people can go to one particular location and find out a lot of different things about different researchers what their work is what they're doing uh, sometimes it's videos sometimes it's conferences and events um, but like you say we are involved in a kind of a 360 franchise which is also going to be involving a tv series um a very big tv series a, a very big film um 
big blockbuster movie and also um, a number of other surprises are going to be. I can't let them out the bag, but there's there's quite a number of big things on the way. Um, there's going to be big changes in this subject and moving forward. And uh, UK is going to be certainly one of those on the map. Well, um, and without uh, you know, I'm not uh, here to uh, uh, to be a part of your disclosure. I won't do that to you, Steve. But I will. <laughs> I will say this. Uh, I was, uh, Steve and Vitaly shared a couple of things with Rita and I, uh, at, at a meeting that we had, uh, this past weekend, uh, here in Los Angeles. And I literally had to stop the conversation and say, what did you just say? <laughs> right? Am I understanding <laughs> you correctly? And I am just blown away. You guys have got some very, very big things that are about to launch, and I can't be more excited, but that's what you guys have planned. You guys are not playing around, and it must be pretty cool to have that kind of freedom and a partner like Vitaly where the two of you, you know, deliver. The two of you get things done, and that's got to be, you know, pretty freeing, right, where you have these ideas but you have the ability to put all of these uh, pieces of the puzzle together and, and do these huge, exciting things. Oh, it is. It's exciting. Every day, you know, we don't know what we're going to experience from day to day uh, with the contacts and calls that come into the office. But, we're all, but there's one main thing that we both are striving for, and that is a platform for this subject and that it's maintained and that there's growth in the, not just in presenting this information to the general public, but also in investigation and research and moving forward. And the distribution and most of, most of all at the top of the chain is networking because the more people that talk with each other the more we learn the more we advance yeah it, it has to be that way and we're going to talk about this when we come back after the break uh what steve is working on uh right now so we're gonna i'll save that for after the break we'll do that in overtime but before we get there steve it's got to be pretty cool to to have a partner like vitaly who is the best dressed man in ufology <laughs> Yes, yeah, he'll be listening to this, you know. Yeah, I know he's listening right now, and he just straightened out his collar and said, yeah, 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 I'm that guy, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> I had to get that in. Vitaly's the best. Let's take a break. This is Fade to Black. I am your host, Jimmy Church. Our guest is Steve Merrill, live from the United Kingdom. When we come back, buckle up, because we're going to discuss... Project Doorway. What is Project Doorway? Well, I'll let Steve tell you all about it when we come back. This is Fade to Black on the Game Changer Network and KGRA, The Planet. Stay with us. Welcome back, Fade to Black, heading into overtime with Steve Mara. You saw this coming. I was watching Twitter. Don't think I didn't notice. Had to do it. Had to do it. But you didn't know what we were going to talk about. We're going to talk about Project Doorway. And in an, in it, Steve, if you could give us a little brief synopsis uh, on what Project Doorway actually is. Okay. Well, about. Yeah, I can do. What Project Doorway is, is, it is the thorough investigation uh, into the UFO phenomena. What it 
represents, what it constitutes now, today, in the 21st century. You know, we're not in the 1950s and 60s anymore. We've come on a lot. And this is the information that can be put forward to encourage a new scientific inquiry into the UFO phenomenon because we know so, so much more now than we did when the last scientific inquiry was being done around about the 1960s and 70s. I think we need to bring the best minds to the table because we can deliver a lot more information now pertaining to what this phenomenon really tr truly constitutes. So right now you are at what stage? You're three years into we, a five-year yes. study? Yeah, we're three years into a five-year study. I'm, I mean, obviously, I started in ufology back in 1983 in my first case. Spent many years, exhausted the subject as far as I could go any further and then I went into the paranormal parapsychological route um, and I studied extensively in that uh, in that field I was involved in a number of think tanks and specialized and I put this specialized paranormal experiments that have not been given the information is not for the general public it hasn't been put out to the general public as yet uh, I was involved in six of them one of those was, was phenomena project which was the last one and what I experienced I have to say, it did change my life. I would never, I, I would never believe anybody telling me if I hadn't witnessed some of this phenomena myself firsthand from those experiments. And we learned very quickly that the phenomena now constitutes something much different than what my mentors told me back in the early 1980s. I was told that the UFO phenomena was a very nuts and bolts phenomenon. It was uh, crafts traveling the distances of space, linear, um, and coming to Earth, and extraterrestrials from other planets. And of course, now, from what we know, it constitutes much, much more. And unfortunately, right from the beginning, we've had one hand tied behind our backs. All ufologists have. You know, we've had this box that we've had to work in called ufology, you know, and nobody was really delving into the other boxes because the other boxes also constitute this phenomenon, such as the spiritual, the paranormal, the metaphysical, the cryptological in some cases. And because we weren't delving into, the, into those other boxes, we had one hand tied behind our backs and we're not going to get a full picture of this phenomenon until we start looking at it as a whole, which we refer to as phenomenology. Um, there's a number of other researchers which are kind of on that same path now. And we know right from the early days, the CIA made references such as uh, weird, uh, weird science and freaking magic. With WSFM, and it was found in old documents on memos between the department, and it's because we were dealing with a physics that we do not really understand. We had to kind of throw away the physics that we know and introduce something else. And now physicists are coming from uh, through from Harvard saying they are aware, and it is evidence of other realities very close to ours, and they are evident through sappings of gravity. These are known to happen. And we know that the UFO phenomenon now constitutes the fact that these things not always are structured craft. They are light aberrations as well, uh, intelligent, interactive. They have a conscious connection with the observers. We know that from pilots reporting, trying to shoot these things down and they make evasive maneuvers. From people trying to photograph them, they won't 
won't allow them to be photographed until they put the cameras away. That does happen many, many occasions as a conscious connection. But they also have amazing capabilities of evasive, <laughs> evasiveness. They want to evade us on many occasions. And things are happening in places around the Earth which are connected to this phenomenon where they manifest. UFOs are seemingly are manifesting in certain locations around planet Earth and go about their business. Sometimes they're going back to these locations and dematerialize. Now, I don't, I'm not a fond lover of the name portals and stargates and things like that. I think it's very sci-fi. But when NASA came out three, three years ago and mentioned about the MMS mission, which is about these portals, they actually used the words portals outside of Earth, around the planet, that these are the proper given name they used was the uh, electron diffused regions, electron diffusion regions, and they are sustainable portals. These things are going somewhere else. And the evidence that we have found when we look at statistics, now we know that round, from around the world, UFOs are seen so plentifully, they are actually being seen. People often say, where's all the UFOs gone? Well, they are still there. They are still happening. It's just the reporting of them is less. But statistically, when we look at them, there's a huge amount of UFOs being seen, so many around the planet on a daily basis, that if they were traveling backwards and forward to Earth, there'd be a superhighway out there. But according to the, the, the scientists and the SETI astronomers, that's not the case. You know, they say that they can pick up the minute things passing through the ionosphere because they leave a wake of, of interference, which could be measured and listened to. They're not seeing that. Right. Where are they all coming from is the biggest question. Well, and the innocence of, I was talking about this earlier in the show tonight uh, before you came on with us, the innocence of the subject and the people that were trying to make sense of it in the 1940s, 1950s, 1960s, they just didn't understand. They were probably seeing the same phenomena that we are seeing today, but they couldn't explain it. It was a nuts and bolts world. They didn't have the understanding of physics that we do today and quantum physics and, and the way that we look at things and time and dimensions and gravity. We didn't have any idea or the, the amount of planets that are out there. Back then, there was no knowledge of any planet, so we didn't even know where they were coming from. We were assuming that it might even be inside of our own solar system. Today, you're absolutely right. It's a whole different situation, even though... Some of it may be metallic nuts and bolts, flying saucers, but the descriptions from the past, which is, it just appeared, and then it just disappeared. They didn't understand why. Today, we're applying that science, and you're absolutely correct on this. We have to approach it from a different mindset if we're going to get these answers, right? Absolutely. I mean, from the people I've talked to in the subject, when you really get down to the, the crux of the matter, is that there's a lot of, there seems to be an inner circle of ufology and an outer circle. The inner circle of ufology are really, a lot of researchers are doing their own work, uh, such as like Jacques Vallée, for example, and I've talked with him um, not too long ago. And he touched on this many years ago, but now it seems to have come full circle. If we have the right minds that come to the table, we can push into areas of new research. We can look at, for example, the metamaterial uh, meta analysis. It's showing that the isotopic range of these materials are kind of not from Earth, even though that they, they are found on Earth, but the isotopic range um, is 4% differentials 
that means that it's come from somewhere else, not terrestrial. But the exactly same things were seemingly found in the reports of alien implants, which uh, which Roger Lear was, was investigating when he was uh, when he was alive. The exactly the same thing. These connections need to be made. You know, these 11, 12 years apart between the metamaterial analysis and implant analysis. But when you look at them, they're made of the same thing. The same 4% differentials in the isotopic range is, is the same. Whatever these things are, these research needs to be done in that field, as there is in gravitational anomalies, where these objects are manifesting, there's a residue of magnetic interference and gravitational anomalies in those locations, which can be now measured, because we do have equipment that can measure time anomalies and gravitational anomalies. There is also satellites in orbit we can utilize now to look at key locations where UFO phenomena is manifesting, and it manifests in certain locations for certain reasons. One of those locations are, are, are widespread across the planet, known as positive magnetic anomalies, which have a less amount of bacteria in those areas as well, coincidentally. Um, and there are loads of areas of these new uh, pieces of research that push you into the um, doing new, new research in these areas by different researchers around the world. And I think we need to do that. We need to advance into these areas now and, and look at the phenomena as a whole, because it does involve the paranormal. Just as a very quick example, we had a poltergeist disturbance three years ago, a mug that was an airport disappeared for 90 odd minutes, appeared in, a, in another room. That was analyzed. Wait, under wait, the wait, 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 what, what did you just say? Slow, <laughs> slow down for a second. What, what materialized and demon? A mug, a kitchen mug, a pig. A mug, a mug. Oh, yes, okay. A mug. Okay, okay. And, and reappeared, but we was matted. We were able to analyze it. And under the microscope, it was not the same mug it had gone through some very strange diathermic reactions now those diathermic reactions in this mug we'd seen before we couldn't work out where we'd seen it and we knew we'd seen it before and it was in an older document of analysis which is referred to as biological traumatology to plants that's when a ufo comes close to the ground and affects the plants on the ground mm -hmm. The plants were analysed and they found exactly the same diathermic reactions in them, which means there's evidence to support that the fact that an, uh, a manifestation of a mug in a poltergeist case and a manifestation of a UFO may be used in the very same physics, which really joins these two phenomena together in some way. This poltergeist from three years ago, was this in your home? You were a witness to it? This was an investigation that took place in, in a place called Morecambe, uh, not too far from Blackpool in the UK, where family were having these disturbances. That is when it was, uh, the incident took place during the investigation uh, okay. and analysed by Lancaster University. Okay, so you weren't a witness to it, but you did the investigation. Oh, no, I was there at the time. Oh, wait, stop, there. stop, yep. Steve, stop, stop, stop. Tell me about this. I you can't just 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 <laughs> you know just nonchalantly yep. just lay this out there and, and let's move on and talk about superconductors. No, <laughs> no, man. What happened? What you, well, you... I mean, I've been involved in the paranormal research quite a lot. I've spent seventeen years working for corporate companies in the UK. I was the I think I would believe I was the only establishment in the world officially on record to investigate corporate companies disturbances and and of course that happened a lot i got called out by private landlords as well and on this occasion um this 
the house, very large house actually, was having these paranormal disturbances, poltergeist infestation, and during whilst we at that investigation, incidents were happening. One of those incidents was an apportation when an object, it was a, it was a mug in the kitchen. It had been placed on the side, we were actually going to have a cup of tea. And all of a sudden we turned around and it had gone. It didn't appear till 96, roughly 96 minutes later, in the middle of the carpet, in the lounge, which is ridiculous because there's no way we, sh we could have missed that. And what was good for us is that we would be able to bench test it against another mug of exact, exactly the same. It was a set of four. Right. Um, and we analysed them. And this particular mug, the apportation, that mug was not the same mug. It looked the same. It weighed the same. It felt the same. Under the microscope, it was not the same. And the reactions, the diathermic reactions that had happened in this mug were, were very, very strange. But we'd had seen this relevant information before. And when we went through our files, we found it. We found the exact diathermic reactions mentioned in plant traumology when the UFO, when a UFO came close to the ground and affected the area and the plants, those plants were taken and analysed and the same diathermic reactions were seen in them. So it was seen that the field around and the object associated to the physics of be it the paranormal, a manifestation of a mug, or a manifestation of a UFO might be the principal physics that's involved. And this is an area where research needs to go. It needs to look at these phenomena, not just in the ufological realm, but the paranormal, because ufology first started in the paranormal realm, not in the skies. It started with communication spiritually with, with entities, and then it got picked up by the Metaphysical Society, which became the Vril Society, uh, in the German uh, during the Second World War. Uh, information was gathered then from extraterrestrials, ET contact, those sort of cases. It went on to an experiment known as the Skoll Experiment took place in Norfolk in the UK. Very famous case where manifestations and communications with ETs took place as well as spiritual communications. And it has always had one foot in the paranormal realm. So we have to say, you know, when we look at the whole picture of the ufological phenomena that it also represents in the field in the paranormal and this was known years ago it was separated purposely blue book officers separated it purposely didn't want to hear about all that ghostly stuff let's just stick to the facts about the ufo and in fact some people were reporting seeing a ufo and then having a spate of paranormal or poltergeist infestation straight after for a week or so um there was connections there's always seemed to have been some connections between the paranormal and ufological phenomena and i think that now we can open all these other doors these areas of research now and say let's look at the picture as a whole not just in ufology we'll start pushing forward and getting some answers because i'm hearing people right from the 1960s be it, be it people from the defense intelligence units uh, in america these these establishments which were investigating ufos saying well it's about psi it's psi phenomena how much you know about psi phenomena you need to have a good understanding of that and then right through even today i mean we've got people who who, who leaked information to the ttsa saying our guys that were researching ufo phenomena got a little bit edgy because they didn't know if it was something demological or paranormal right you know you You've got to consider the whole picture to get forward in this subject, and I think that's the way forward. I think you explained my missing socks. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there's there's another element to this, I, you know, where 
if we go back, and I'm not re- I, this is not a reach, Steve, but if you go back and we talk about trickster entities and you know stealing little objects from your house and you know the fairies uh, always misplacing your keys, but then you find them later, uh, you know th- th- these things happen. It's it's very similar to what you're describing there, except we try to rationalize it in our own mind, right? I just lost them. Maybe if you analyzed your keys once you found them, you'd find that they weren't the same. <laughs> they just, may be. Right, may be, right, yeah, right. It could be. I mean, we do know, and I talked uh, with researcher Grant Cameron, who's very much into this. I mean, he, we've been in um, some consistent talks now for over a year um, with regarding our research on apportations and UFO phenomena. And what we considering here as, an, as a, a section of research is that when apports do take place, you wouldn't be able to identify that apport as an apport. It looks the same, feels the same, weighs the same. How would we know it is? Um, only under the microscope. But it would seem that paranormal phenomena continues um, but weakens and suppresses very quickly once you take the apport out the location. So does the apport, where it comes from somewhere else, cause some type of quantum bridging between our reality and another reality? Um, and this is where we're going. This is, this is all quantum physics and quantum reality, unfortunately. But I think this is the way forward within this subject. I think as soon as we start accepting the fact that we're dealing with something which is uh, seems seemingly metaphysical in nature and constitutes the also paranormal phenomena and PSI, then that's going to open up doorways of new research because ufologists are going to just have to step out of the comfort zone just a little bit to say, okay, let's look at the paranormal aspects or the psychic ramifications of these experiences. I think that's the way forward. And I think having this project, which we've been working on for such a long time now, traveling around the world and looking at ancient sites which are connected still, actively connected to the phenomena, UFO phenomena, in key locations, this is why it kind of all falls in place, um, that we will start to see a wider scope as to where to go and investigate and where to push forward. We have new equipment. We have new pieces of software now that can be used. We have new ways of identifying this phenomena uh, and ways to to experience it as well because we know that uh, this phenomena can also generate infrasonics. We know that because its effects on birds and insects, they go fall very quiet at the time of manifestation. Um, and there are some of these wonderful areas of research we've decided over the last three years is to do a new course, a new course that will help people push forward into these new areas of research in ufology. Um, and we went to the best people around the world as well, and they've managed to put things together for us, their latest credible details on the subject of ufology. And we ploughed it all into this course known as the UITC, the UFO Investigators Training Course. We recently submitted this to MUFON. Uh, we had a meeting with um, uh, with Jan Hausen and uh, he was he was very surprised with the with the the actual course and wanted to recommend it um, by MUFON, which is going to be available in the next couple of weeks. But it's a course that's ongoing because the subject is forever changing and we're 
forever learning something. So the learning of this subject should never be static. So what we're saying is, is that though that there is a principal course to study, which takes you right from basic to the advanced areas of this research, which we are providing now, that there also continues to be free updates and modules going to be given out because that's what we want to do. We want to take people into new areas so that we're not so static and so that we're not just getting another photograph and another video that we are actually coming up with some answers to this. Yeah, because this is what is interesting because you brought up a, a point that physicists on the other side are bringing up the same point. But that is here in the UFO community, we do need to talk about the interdimensional, the parallel worlds, the alternate reality side of things. The the the, the part about this that takes it out of uh, the the pure physical side of the UFO hypothesis, and then but on the other side, the same argument is being put out there by physicists and the scientific community, which is. There are extra dimensions outside of our four with string theory. There are multiple universes. There are parallel worlds. There are alternate realities. There is entanglement, right? And they want us, the world, to understand and believe these concepts that are sound like pure science fiction, but they are not. The math says that this is real. Well, if that is the case then all of the paranormal and the supernatural, no matter what a physicist is going to tell you, all of the spirituality that we're talking about is being proven by the scientific community. We need to get the two of these groups together, man. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's a way of moving forward because I don't think we're going to, we're not going to get any more answers from, you know, and uh, all these other people who would come forward with experiences or photograph or, you know, I'm a contactee and so on and so forth. We, because it's a hyper evasive phenomena. It always has been and it always will be. It's always one step ahead of us. It can read us consciously. We know what we're going to do before we do it. Well, exactly the same things happens in seances when we sat down with questions 20 questions to ask and then we're delivered the answers before we've even given the question because there's a conscious connection you know it's no surprise that we that people experience um sleep deprivation and and, and paralysis during these experiences in the paranormal when a dark figure appears in the bedroom or a shadow figure or be it ufos or aliens turn up or small beings and lights coming through the window you know the, these phenomena are seemingly are one of the same they're just the it's, it seems to have a different mask and the phenomena has been showing these different masks through different times the further we go back the mass changes the name changes you know they be it from the aliens to you know to the fairies to the the demons and the demons and the archons and the jinn you can call them what you will but they seemingly are one of the same thing, that's right the that's same right. powers no question about that and i find this you know really really exciting but where is the information for uitc the UITC course is going to be going up on the MUFON website store within the next couple of weeks, available, first time available, uh, under special offer. Um, but this is a, it's a, it's an ongoing thing because what we're saying to people is, is that this is a starting point. This is a 300 page glossy magazine. Well, it's a glossy book. Um, and it's a resource thing that they can take with them. They can uh, apply right from the beginning of it being interested in the subject to advanced studies. It tells you where to go and how to get it. Where 
where to get the software which you can utilize. You can tap into satellites orbiting Earth, which are constantly measuring gravitational anomalies and magnetic anomalies. And the evidence points to the phenomena of UFOs are utilizing magnetic anomalies, positive magnetic fields in certain locations. They have been since well, as, as long as we know. You know Philip, Philip Corso first mentioned it in 1982, said that the US government were looking into five major um, positive magnetic regions where UFO activity is taking place. This is still going on now. The government are aware of it. The US government, I assure you, are aware of it, but they're keeping it quiet. But we have the capabilities of looking now and saying, okay, let's look at all the major past incidents. We looked at 2,000 major UFO incidents over the, the last, say, 60, 70 years years and they're in positive magnetic regions that's not by chance you know that those are happening in these key locations and it's also interesting to point out that these magnetic anomalies are not just here on planet earth but they're also around the sun and and the moon as well so we see a lot of activity from the sun maybe this phenomena just are star jumpers maybe they, they they use magnetic anomalies to get from one place to the other we're figuring it out. I, I can't wait until some of these breakthroughs happen because when it does, all of that poltergeist stuff that people have been investigating like yourself or ghosts, near-death experiences, these other world, all of it is related, Steve. And, and mm-hmm. it, it's all going to uh, be solved, I think, at the same time. And I cannot believe we went through two and a half hours and did not talk about Phenomena Magazine. <laughs> I, I cannot believe it. Well, you, yeah, are, <laughs> you are the CEO of Phenomena Magazine. Uh, you've got almost 2 million readers around the world, and, and it's a great publication. And please tell everybody where they can go and check it out. Absolutely, yeah. They can go to phenomenamagazine.co.uk. The magazine is free. You can download it at the end of every month. Um, also, there's a back issue section there. You can go back and get every other single magazine that's ever been created. Uh, and uh, we are probably about 15, 16 years in now. Uh, but it is distributed in four con- uh, in 12 countries under four languages at this moment. And we're still looking to expand it. But it's about networking. And it's about freely giving out information um, and, uh, and keeping everybody in touch with what's going on around the world. You're the best, Steve. Give my best to Jackie. Uh, tell Vitaly uh, I've got a great haberdasher that I can put him in touch with there in <laughs> London. And we're going to be seeing you guys very, very soon over in the United Kingdom. And I, I can't be more excited than uh, the way I feel right now. It's going to be great. Thank you so much, Steve, and enjoy the rest of your day. Wonderful. It was an absolute pleasure, Jimmy. Thanks again. Steve Mara, live from the United Kingdom, and I'm not playing around. If you want to check me out, uh, when I jump up on stage and say, hello, Manchester, <laughs> you got to be there. It is June 26th through the 27th, 2020 in Manchester, awakeningufo.com. We've got the links up in social media. We've got it up over on our website, and it's going to be a tremendous event. And like I said, Eric Von Daniken, Richard Dolan, Nick Pope, Grant Cameron, Billy Carson, Laura Eisenhower. It's going to be an amazing weekend. So come on out and hang out with Rita and I, and you'll be able to see Fader X for the first time over in Europe. With that, I'm going to get out of here tomorrow night is fader night it is open lines all night long my favorite night of the week well besides tonight with steve mara i am your host jimmy church what a great conversation tonight thank you steve mara he's the best
Faded Black's executive producer is Rita Camarion. Show is produced by Hilton J. Palm, Renee, Dennis, and Bob. Announcers are Steve Harder, Gene Vitoa, Mark D. Kovar. Webmaster is Drew the Geek. Music, Doug Aldrich. Happy birthday, Doug. Intro, Spaceboy, spaceboymusic.com. Syndication is KGRA The Planet. Fade to Black is produced by KJCR for the Game Changer Network. This broadcast is only copyrighted 2020 by Fade to Black and the Game Changer Network, Inc. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere in the known universe without written permission from Fade to Black or the Game Changer Network. I'm your host, Jimmy Church. Tomorrow night's Fader Night. It's Thursday. Until then, I want everybody to be safe. Go back, Lee Tappy.